Good evening, ladies. Welcome back. I just wanted to share with you a reminder of the donations for Trails Ministries, and I uh, grabbed one of these as a, a visual aid reminder. Um, but just really quickly, I want to take 15 seconds and share something with you that I read this morning uh, from Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Through the Eyes of Women. She talks about how the, the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touched Jesus, and power went out from him, but it wasn't enough for Jesus to know that he had healed her. He wanted to know her, and he wanted to see her, and her point was that she was unclean, and she had not been able to be touched by a holy man for 12 years, and yet Jesus knew that she was important. He wanted to touch her. He wanted to see her, and she's the only woman in the scriptures where it's recorded that Jesus actually called her daughter. He's not ashamed of what makes us a woman. He's not ashamed of the things that embarrass us or our husbands. He loves us as daughters. Isn't that beautiful? And I think in some way we can bless some women who don't know that part about Jesus through these gifts, these strange gifts that we're being asked to bring. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started with Jenna's teaching tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us. You love us uniquely because you've made us uniquely. I thank you that uh, we can learn about your love for us through studying your word. I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts tonight to hear what you have for us. Speak through Jenna, through this passage, and help us to learn lessons that will help us to follow you more closely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, ladies. It's good to be here. Um, good to be teaching and being in God's word today. You are officially in week six, so I just want to give a reminder that we have fellowship week coming up very soon. We will meet here this week or this upcoming week for the live teaching, um, but then the following week, that's October 31st, we will not meet in person for the live teaching. Instead, you'll have a week off. Um, you can get caught up on your homework. You can just relax for a week, whatever you need. You can kind of slowly work through week eight, um, but you will have October 31st, that week leading up to it. You will not have homework, um, and instead you will gather in whatever way you are going to for your fellowship. I know some of you are actually planning to do fellowship next week. I know that some of you um, are going to meet on the 31st, so if you haven't made those plans, if you would talk together and just make sure that you know um, what your group is doing on the 31st, that would be good to kind of get settled here in the next week. Last week, um, we left off on chapter 13, and I just want to give us a brief reminder of where we left off, because um, we're going to move full speed ahead. We have a lot to cover today. Um, but in chapter 13, we saw that the Israelites had come up to battle against the Philistines, and we saw that the Philistines, were told, were as numerous as the sand, okay, at the seashore. And so we get this idea that we have this huge, vast army that the Israelites are facing, but the Israelites are super confident, right? No. <laughs> like we saw that they were hiding in caves and crevices. Like it was emphasized over and over again how fearful they were. They ran across the river to get away from the Philistines. Um, basically anything they could do to dodge fighting, they were going to do. And so we left with this tension at the end of last week. And we saw that we had the question of one, are the Israelites going to be able to defeat the Philistines? Because we didn't get to see the battle yet. But then also, would Saul be the one to help the Israelites remember that it is the Lord who delivers them? So that's kind of where we left off last week. And with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and jump into chapter 14 today. And what I would encourage you to do, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to chapter 14. We're going to be covering 14 and 15 in 1 Samuel today. And if you have your note pages, you can use that as well. But I'm going to go ahead and begin in chapter 14, verse 1. It begins by saying, One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So immediately in our text today, we see Jonathan, Saul's son, take initiative. 
Jonathan begins to act, and we're going to see in a minute that Saul is still somewhere else waiting. And so what we're going to see as we move forward in the text is we're going to see that the author is setting up a comparison for us. And he's constantly going to put Jonathan and Saul side by side so we can see the actions of both of these men. Continuing on in verse 2, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. So as we read these words of who we find Saul with, who he's having company with, our hearts should kind of sink. Hopefully you remember these names from week two. Uh, these are those sons of Eli. This is really the doomed dynasty that we read about. And so this is where we find Saul. We, so we now have a priest whose dynasty has been taken away from him, right? His dynasty is doomed. And he is hanging out with a priesthood whose dynasty is doomed as well. And we see that Ahijah is wearing the ephod, and that's going to be important for us as we go forward. Um, but it also signals to us that he is the high priest in the area. So Saul, who does not have Samuel's help anymore, who's not able to call on Samuel for the, the um, advice that he needs, is now seeking that from these men. Continuing in verse 3, it says, And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there is a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other in the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So we find Jonathan with his armor bearer. And this armor bearer would have been more than like a golf caddy for him. Like he's not just carrying Jonathan's weapons. That's, there's more than to what he would do. This is really like Jonathan's right-hand man. This was probably the most skilled warrior in the Israelite army. And he basically would war with Jonathan. And so as Jonathan looks across this rocky ravine that is separating the Israelites from the Philistines, he begins to hatch a plan. Now, this plan is not just something that Jonathan is trying to do on his own. We can see that this is a plan that is rooted in faith, and it is rooted on the idea that God can deliver with just a few. And I have to think that as Jonathan is, is thinking about this, that maybe he's thinking back to that time when he saw the Ark of the Covenant captured by the Philistines, and he saw that God does not need an Israelite army to defeat a nation. And so as Jonathan is thinking, he understands that God can conquer without the help of man. And so I love how Jonathan words his idea. He says, come, let us go. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Jonathan knows that God can do mighty things. And he says, perhaps he'll be glad to do it here. And I think that Jonathan's perhaps is an important part of his faith. He balances God's sovereignty with his power. He knows that God can do this, but he also knows that God will act in the way that he sees fit. And so Jonathan hatches this plan and comes up with a test that he's going to lay before the Lord to determine his will. Verse 7, And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If you say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say to us, say to, but if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison, garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. 
Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. They fell before, the, before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, at, within as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. As we read in this text, we can see the arrogance of the Philistines. But that arrogance probably isn't super unfounded. They know, remember, the state of the Israelite army. They know that they are without weapons. They know that they are hiding. We can see them even making fun of them. Like, look, they're coming out of their holes and caves, they're saying. And so basically, the Philistines are egging them on. They feel incredibly comfortable with their ability to win here. But Jonathan sees this as an answer to his prayers. And the author that the language, the, uh, the language that the author uses here is really intentional. He says, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And that phrase is a phrase that takes us back to the book of Judges. That phrase is used in the, by the author of the book of Judges to talk about other victories and times where people laid out a test before the Lord and God ensured their victory. We saw it with Deborah and Barak. It was a language used with Gideon as well. And so as the original audience would have heard that phrase, what they know now is the victory is sure. Like God is handing them over. He has already done it. And so Jonathan and his right-hand man go across the ravine in faith and strike down 20 of the, of the Philistine men. And they did that work, and then we see God does the rest. He creates a panic through the land. The land quakes, and there is now panic and confusion. But what about Saul? What is he doing during this whole time? Let's look at verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to, pe to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone up from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Philistines who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed after them into battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Bethaven. The comparison here between Saul and Jonathan continues. We see that Jonathan takes initiative, and Saul is still waiting in fear. And he's not trusting what the Lord can do. And then all of a sudden, Saul hears this commotion, and he asks the question, like, who is causing this commotion? And it is quickly revealed to him that Jonathan is gone. And so Saul does the right thing. He calls Ahijah the high priest, and he says, let's seek his will first. Let's find out what, the God, what God would want us to do. And so Ahijah comes, and he brings the Ark of the Covenant, we're told. And a lot of scholars think that it probably wasn't the actual Ark of the Covenant, but maybe it was the ephod that Ahijah was wearing that he brings. But somehow he brings that forward, and Ahijah begins to pray and ask the Lord for instruction. But in the middle of that, we're told that the noise of the fighting gets louder and louder, and Saul rashly decides to stop. He tells Ahijah, put down your hand, and he stops his intercession, and he rushes off to battle. If divine orders were going to come for Saul, he is too impatient to wait for them. Jonathan waits for God's sign. He lays out a sign before the Lord, and then he waits until that sign is confirmed. Saul begins to do this, but just like we saw last week, he is too impatient to wait. And so again, we see that Saul rushes into something again. 
And as the people see the confusion and they see that the Lord is fighting and working with Israel, they jump into battle as well. In verse 23, we read this truth that the Lord saved Israel that day. The battle and the victory belong to the Lord. But we're going to see that Saul kind of takes this and twists this here in the next section. Beginning in verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now in your homework this week, you looked at this phrase hard-pressed in the NIV, and you saw that in that translation, it was actually defined as being distressed. So we see that the Israelite army is distressed because of this oath that has been placed on them. This is the first of a couple oaths that we're going to see Saul give today. And it's probable that he probably gave this oath, like, and made this, this oath before the Lord right before he launched into battle. So we have this vision of Saul, like he's starting to make an intercession before the Lord and ask the Lord's will, but he's too impatient to wait. So he tells Ahijah, put down your hand. And instead he says, you know, we're, we're not going to eat until evening. It's kind of a way of him saying to the Lord, like, okay, this is what I'm going to do instead. I'm too impatient to wait to find your will, and so I'm going to make this oath before you in order to win favor. And because of this rashness, because of his rushing to get to this battle, because of this oath that he places on on these men, these weary men can now not eat until evening. And notice the contrast that we see between verse 23 and 24. In 23, we read that it is the Lord who brought salvation, but at the very next verse, we see that Saul says that the purpose of the battle is so that he can be avenged before his enemies. Let's continue in verse 25 and see how the people respond to this oath. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put the tip of his staff that was in his hand, dipped it in the honeycomb, and put it in his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan says, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoils of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So we see that Jonathan has not heard about this oath, probably because he was already engaged in battle at the moment that it was given. And so when he comes across honey, we see that he reaches out and he takes some. And we're told that his eyes became bright. This is kind of a play on words here that our author is doing because he's kind of saying two things. Yes, Saul, uh, um, Jonathan was definitely revived, right? There was a physical change in him, but his eyes were also opened to his father. He clearly sees his father's lack of wisdom. In verse 29, he says, my father has troubled the land. Saul, in this rash oath that he makes, hurts his people He sours the victory. He made it incomplete because his soldiers are now too tired to continue fighting. Not only that, but his soldiers are put in a terrible position. And we're going to see this in the next section, beginning in verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Hyjalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with all the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. The distance between Michmash and Ahijalon was 20 miles. 
So this is 20 miles that these men would have traveled after fighting without food. And so when they get there and it is evening, it is no surprise that they fall upon this food and they eat it in a way that is unworthy. Right? In the Torah, we read that the blood has life in it. And so one of the laws of the Mosaic law was you are not to eat an animal with blood. And so we see these men like devour these animals and they slaughter them on the ground. And the reason why that was bad is because they weren't hanging, the blood wouldn't drain. And so as Saul sees this, he becomes panicked because he knows that they are violating Mosaic code. Once again, Saul is very, very concerned with outward ritual, isn't he? more concerned than admitting that he made a mistake in the first place, that he put his men in this position. And so what does he do? But he says, let's build an altar, right? But the purpose of this altar is not an altar to honor the Lord. The purpose is to make sure that they are upholding this ritual law. It is sad that the first altar that we read about that Saul builds is one again in his attempt to stay in favor with the Lord. Verse 36, then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer them that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and my son Jonathan shall be on the other. And the people said to Saul, do, as, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If the guilt is in me or my son Jonathan, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if the guilt is on the people of Israel, give Thumen. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, and the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do, to me, do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. It's really interesting that we read here that the Israelites haven't finished off the Philistines. And we have to wonder if maybe the reason why their victory was so incomplete was because these men were so hungry. That they got tired out and they didn't have the energy to, con to continue fighting. That maybe the victory would have been more decisive if Saul had not been so impatient in waiting for the Lord's answer. But in verse 37, we see that Saul inquires of the Lord and he asks, should we pursue them through the night and continue fighting? But we see that God does not respond. And the reason why that God does not respond is because there is sin in the camp. And of course, we know what that sin is, right? We know that is the sin of Jonathan, that he broke this oath. And so now we see that Saul is going to make another oath before the Lord. And he basically says like, hey, we will find whoever broke this oath and we're going to put them to death. And so the method that he uses is this kind of casting of lots. And so he has the high priest bring out the Urim and the Thum, which are kind of like counters or dice that they were going to throw. And if the counters landed on the people of Israel, they would know that they were the ones who had sinned. And if it landed on the royal family, they would know it was there. And so they throw it out, and we see that it indicates that the problem is in the royal family. And so then they separate Jonathan, they separate Saul, and they throw it again, and it points to Jonathan. And so we see right away, Saul is so eager to stay in right standing before the Lord that he is very prepared to put his son to death. Thankfully, though, we see the people ransom Jonathan. 
because they know it is Jonathan who brought them this victory. Notice they say that it is Jonathan who has worked with God today. They have a right understanding that it is the Lord who has brought this victory, but it is Jonathan with whom he worked. Saul continues to be concerned with outward ritual. He continues to try to do the right thing, but again and again and again, we see that he misses the importance of relationship, that he misses the importance of seeking the Father's will. James chapter 3, verse 17 through 18 says this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Saul's lack of wisdom here brings chaos to the land of Israel. Saul does not make peace. His rashness and his tendency to jump into battle does not bring peace to the people. And we're going to see this theme of wisdom and peace going hand in hand as we continue to move forward. But first, let's wrap up chapter 14. And we're going to see here that the author pauses in the narrative and he gives us a brief summary, kind of like an interlude of Saul's life. Verse 47 When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. He did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were were Jonathan, Ishvi, Amalekishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The firstborn was Merab, and the, second, the name of the younger was Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, Ner the father of Abner, and the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong or valiant man, he attached him to himself. So we have two chapters, between these two chapters that we are reading today, this interlude detailing Saul's life and his victories. And the summary is interesting because as we read this, we see that it depicts Saul in a pretty favorable light. We see here that he has won victories, right? That he is able to get men to come and fight for him. But the things that we have read so far have been mainly negative. Saul, although he might have been able to win victories, although he did have some incredibly decisive battles, even though we see here that he was able to win a lot against the Philistines, did not keep his covenant with the Lord. And in God's upside-down kingdom, in God's economy, What matters more than decisive battles is the heart and a man's desire to stay in relationship with him. So with that in mind, let's continue on into chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them in the way that they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So these verses take us back to Exodus chapter 17. When the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, when they had crossed the Red Sea and they were tired and worn out and they had just taken this really long journey and they were on their way into the desert, they are attacked by the Amalekites. The Amalekites essentially take advantage of their weakness. And this is a story where we see Moses intercede for his people. And when he's like holding up his staff and he has people helping to keep his hand up, like if his hand is up in the air, the people do well. And when we see his hand drop, the people began to fail. That's the battle that is being referenced here. And in response to this opposition to the Lord's saving purposes, the Lord says this in Deuteronomy. He says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. 
When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So this is where we are coming from here. This is the history that the Lord is bringing back around. And in this next section, as we move forward in chapter 15, verses 1, all the way through 35, we're going to see the phrase, devote to destruction, seven times. And you noted that in your homework. So we see here that God is calling for the complete destruction of the Amalekites. But we can't forget as we read this section, and we probably cringe a little bit as we're reading this, that we are peering into a conversation that our author is having with his original audience. This way that he is writing, this language that he is using, is common in ancient Near Eastern culture. It is battle language. And this exaggerated report of what was going to happen was typical of the language that would be used to describe what was going to happen in a battle. And so as we read this, we shouldn't actually assume that all of the Amalekites are going to be wiped out. In fact, we know that's not the case because they pop up later in the Bible. And so as we read this, we understand that what God is asking for is a decisive victory. He says there's going to be a decisive victory against the Amalekites, not that they're going to be utterly wiped out. So let's look and see what happens in this section, beginning in verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. In your homework this week, you were asked to compare what God's instructions were to the people versus what they did. And you saw that there's a little bit of discrepancy, isn't there? God called for total destruction. And what God is basically saying here is you're not to take spoils. Everything from this battle belongs to me. This is my war, not your war. And so God asks for the people not to take things. But instead, we see that they hold back the best for themselves. Continuing on in verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not followed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear and this lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to total destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord has told me this night. And he said to him, Speak. So we have come to that verse that has probably kind of given you nightmares all week long, this idea of God having regrets. Can God have regrets? Can he change his mind is basically what we're being put, um, put before us right now. Now, obviously, we know that God is unchanging. We know that he can't change his mind from one moment to the other because he is constant. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this phrase because it's going to circle back around to us at the end of this chapter. So I'm going to ask you just to hold on to those thoughts and questions that you have, and we'll talk about them a little bit more. What we see here um, is that Saul is oblivious to what he has done. So oblivious, in fact, that we read that he sets up a monument to himself. Like he goes to Mount Carmel, he builds this beautiful monument, and we're told that as Samuel is seeking him out to point out his wrongdoings, that Saul has already been busy congratulating himself. 
And when Samuel comes on the scene, Saul is so excited, he rushes up to him and basically says, like, look what I did. He's looking for a pat on the back. Look what I did. And as he's telling him about his victories, Samuel can hear the bleeding of sheep in the background. And again, we see Saul play the blame game. When Samuel begins to question him, why do I hear these animals? Saul says, well, they brought them, right? He shifts the blame onto the people. And notice now, now now the people aren't just going to have these sheep. They're not just holding these things that are good. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to sacrifice them, right? But notice what Saul says. They're going to sacrifice them to your God, not ours. The dialogue continues in verse 17. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Samuel said to, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of, Amalek, of Amalek, and devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul continues to play the blame game. And essentially in this dialogue here, we see Saul saying it's the people's fault and Samuel responding with, you are king, right? Samuel continues in verse 22 and says, has the Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to be, it is to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than that of the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel here quickly gets to the heart of the matter. Saul continues to try to please the Lord. He continues to try to earn favors through ritual and sacrifice, through quick prayers that are basically thrown up in the midst of battle in order to earn the Lord's favor. But Samuel says that offerings are only acceptable when they are offered with a heart that recognizes that the Lord's way is better than mine. Samuel ends this section by telling us that God has rejected Saul as king. Despite his victories, despite the fact that he can rally people behind him, despite the fact that he has done a wonderful job of pushing back the Philistines, Saul has not pointed the people to their true king. Samuel says here that presumption is like idolatry because we see that when we exalt ourselves over the authority of God, what we're really doing is worshiping ourselves. And finally, we see that Samuel's words prompt a right response in Saul, and he is uh, moved to the place to ask for forgiveness. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your, and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. So Saul finally admits that he's wrong, but notice what he asks for. He is so concerned with pardon because he's concerned with how he's going to look in front of the people. He wants Samuel to go with him and pardon him so that the people don't realize that anything has changed. Verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of the people, uh, before elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. 
Saul is now fully aware of the implications of his rejection. As Samuel turns to leave, Saul reaches out and tries to grab onto his robe, and we see that it tears. And we're told that that symbolizes that the kingdom has been torn from Saul's hands. With this, Saul has lost the kingdom, but we're told that there is another one who has been chosen. Saul was the man of the people's choosing, but we know David is going to be the man of God's choosing. And in an attempt to continue to save face, we see that Saul asks Samuel again to accompany him before the people. And we see that Samuel relents, and Saul acts like nothing has changed. Again, Saul seems more interested in a temporary fix than in a changed heart. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring, me, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to the house, went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. If we look at verse, verses 29, which told us, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And we compare that with what we read in verse 35, which tells us the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. We have two verses here that almost seem to contradict each other, right? But we know that God does not contradict himself. God is the God who never wavers. He is always faithful, but he's not indifferent to his people. He mourns over the sin of his people. So as we read here that God regrets and he doesn't regret, they're both true. God doesn't regret things because he doesn't change. He is constant, but he regrets things because he grieves over the fact that his people continue in sin. He is unchanging, but he is not unfeeling. And we see as we read these final passages that there's something tragic about Saul, isn't there? We can see Saul, and it's almost like he's struggling to figure out what it looks like to be king and scrambling to try to figure out how to earn God's favor and how to follow him. And then we hear that a better man has been chosen. But we know this better man, don't we? And we know that this man is going to commit some appalling sins that Saul never has and never will. Saul tries again and again to obey the Lord, but we see that he continually uses the Lord as a pawn to try to earn favor in battles or to win victories. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 10 through 11 says this, Let him who walks in the darkness, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This is what Saul found impossible to do. He continually trusted in self rather than the Lord. But we also have to take a look at Samuel here. Samuel, upset that Saul has failed once again, upset that he did not have the decisive victory that the Lord asked for, goes and rejects Saul, and quite brutally, doesn't he? And then also executes a gag. Neither action ends in peace. Saul is utterly destroyed by the rejection he receives. And we're going to see as we move forward in the narrative next week that Saul is going to become quite crazy. And he's going to be depicted as almost a madman. And this murder of a gag, we shouldn't read that and feel good about what happened. We're told that he is hacked to pieces. That should take us back to what we read in Judges 19 about that concubine woman who was murdered and hacked as well. Rather than blotting out the name of the evil Amalekites, Samuel brings a whole nother cycle of violence. And essentially, he becomes just like them. He does what is evil instead of bringing peace. So as we close today, I want to think about the question, 
How do we make peace with the warrior God of the Old Testament? What do we do with these stories? What do we do with stories like this where we see Samuel cut a man into pieces? We know that we serve a good and merciful God, but when we see passages like the one we saw where Saul is told to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, when we read that he is to destroy man and woman, child and infant, those are hard passages to read. And I think we can have a few responses to those. Sometimes we can look at those and we respond and we say, you know what, I'm just going to ignore that text. Like I'm just going to read over that and pretend like I didn't see it. Or we know people who say, I don't serve the God of the Old Testament, right? I serve the God of the New Testament. But we know those responses aren't right. God is unchanging. He's a God of both. I think we could also have the response of pulling the sovereignty card. Like we're like, oh, well, God's will is God's will. He is sovereign, and I'm not going to question it. And that's right. God is sovereign. But I think that we are allowed to question. I think God actually invites our questions. I think that we can be faithful readers of the Bible by questioning. That as we experience tension as we read, when we read a passage like this and we cringe because we know God's goodness, we've experienced his goodness in our lives, but we read something and we say, this doesn't feel good. I think that what the author is doing is he is inviting us to question. He's inviting us to reread that passage and dig a little deeper to see what is God doing here. He's inviting us to consider what would the original audience have heard or to get to the spirit of the text rather than just reading a complete literal interpretation. And the Lord was sorry he made Saul king over Israel is where we ended. God does not disappoint himself and he's never caught off guard when God is said to be regretful or sorrowful or we read that God is disappointed, it's an invitation for us to look and see what is God sorrowful over. It's an invitation to reread the text and ask why is God upset about what happened here. I want to give you just a few more instances of where we see this language in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 6, at the coming of the flood, we hear that the Lord was sorry that he made humankind, right? And then what happens? But God rains down judgment on the people, but he saves a select few. But what happens with those that they save, but they cycle right back into their pattern of sin, right? We see the same thing with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that the Lord comes down. He sees the evil in so in, of Sodom, and he is sorrowful. And so again, he rains down judgment, but he saves a select few, Lot and his daughters, right? But Lot and his daughters cycle right back into the cycle of sin. There is a pattern here where human beings sin, God pours out his wrath and judgment, and those who survive quickly return back to their sinful ways. When we read these passages that depict God's sorrow and regret, we have to see that this is a literary pattern that is occurring. We have to see that as God looks upon the sin and brokenness of his mankind and offers a way of escape for his people, that he is sorrowful because they do not choose it. They return right back into sin. And we see that this pattern continues in our story today. God pours out judgment on Saul, but Samuel, instead of choosing peace, instead of offering peace, moves right back into sin and murders a man. And we know that David, the chosen one, isn't going to do any better either. All of the Bible including the Old Testament, is about Jesus. And we cannot read these texts without the gospel in mind. In God's sorrow over sin, God's wrath is poured out on Jesus, but this time we have an escape. This time his people can grab hold of the escape because no longer do we have to fall back into sin without hope. We have hearts now that are transformed and we have a Savior who intercedes for us. So as we read about Samuel executing Agag, we can see that peace could have been offered instead. And isn't this what we see in Jesus? Jesus is the better Samuel. Jesus breaks that pattern. In him, we can be peacemakers. 
in him, we can offer a way for people out of darkness and into light. Or as Zechariah says in his prophecy, he says, this child will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In James 3.18, we read that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We are called to be peacemakers in our kingdoms, to offer the peace found in Jesus to those around us, to be like Jesus and offer a way out of darkness and into light. We have the ability to set a table before our enemies, and not a table where we say, like, look at this table I have that I can partake in, but a table where we invite them to eat with us and to enjoy the feast of the goodness of God. This is the better way that is found in Jesus. And so as we read these texts and as we struggle with them, we have to remember that they all point to the goodness of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. Um, Lord, we admit that there are things in this text that we don't fully understand. There's things that we read that can make us cringe or feel uncomfortable But we thank you, Lord, that you invite us to study them further, that you invite us to consider and wrestle with these texts, that you invite us to seek out your goodness because we know that you are good. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for Jesus who stood in our place and who makes us peacemakers. We thank you that Jesus broke the cycle of violence, and because of that, Lord, we can do the same thing. I pray for us, Lord, as we move into our small group time. I pray, Lord, that these ladies would have a wonderful discussion tonight. I pray that you would bless their time and that they would be encouraged by the things that they hear from one another, and they would also fall more deeply in love with you as they read and study this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, ladies, so much. You can go ahead into your small groups.